Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Ed Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about Marx, and we're going to talk specifically about the theory of history, sometimes called historical materialism, dialectical materialism. There's all sorts of fun names. And we're going to have Edmund do the intro again today. So go ahead, Edmund. Let's see what you've got. Born in May 1818 in Trier, the Rhineland, in what was then the Kingdom of Prussia and what is now Germany, Marx was only age 17 when he started a law course at the University of Bonn, which he combined with an intense interest in poetry and romanticism, becoming engaged to Jenny von Westphalen at the age of 18. In a letter to his father, a lawyer, 19-year-old Marx expressed a growing interest in the philosophy of Hegel after departing from his initial interest in the philosophy of the earlier German idealists Kant and Fichte. Marx disliked Hegel's style, but approved of the synthesis Hegel tried to achieve between is and ought, or in Hegel's terms, the real and the rational. For Hegel, history was the unfurling of reason through time. The absolute idea of history was to be realised under the conditions of the modern state, particularly the Prussian state. And Hegel was playing on the notions after the French Revolution and Napoleon's export of French political techniques to Prussia with the Napoleonic Code, that Europe was undergoing a convergence between history and morality, where the former was moving towards the latter, indeed history for Hegel, is the unfurling of a certain morality of freedom. That the thought of the soul and the being of the body were on the path to becoming one. But the Prussian state's repression of anti monarchical trends in this incipient liberal radicalism, including as it happens in uh, the political expressions of Marx's father, Heinrich Marx, who uh, harboured some of these more liberal ideas about um, moving beyond monarchy, but he was uh, loath to express these uh, too forthrightly, uh, lest the Prussian state censor him. Um, And the combination of the Prussian state's repression um, of some of these liberal ideas combined with the romantic and nostalgic uh, resistance to Enlightenment rationalism uh, showed that Hegel's optimism uh, might have been misplaced. And as Gareth uh, Stidman Jones put it in his biography of Karl Marx, quote, the appeal of Hegel as Marx wrote to his father in 1837, had been that of, quote, seeking the idea in reality itself. But the problem, Stephen Jones goes on to note, was that thought and being were not coming together in the way Hegel's position assumed. 
if anything, and particularly from the time of Hegel's death in 1831, thought and being had been driven further and further apart. End of quote. Hegel's thought was complicated. His suggestion that history was the unfurling of the world's spirit, of moral ideals being realised in reality, where reality itself uh, was the manifestation of rationality, uh, can lead one in two different directions, as showed by two schools of Hegel scholarship which were flourishing around the time Marx was a student. The right-wing Hegelians, on the one hand, took Hegel perhaps accurately as saying that Prussia itself was the end of history, and therefore no more had to be changed. And all that was to be done was to conserve what Prussia had achieved for humanity. Hegel himself contrasts the Oriental, Greek and Roman epochs of history with the Germanic realm or epoch of history, which was the the realm or era Hegel most closely identifies with the realisation of the ideal of freedom. Um, And perhaps like Johann Gottlieb Fichte, Hegel took the state uh, to be the basis for projecting this ideal, while Immanuel Kant, uh, perhaps the founder of this tradition of German idealism, uh, thought that the individual alone could be the basis for freedom. Fichte and Hegel thought that the ideal of freedom could be applied to the state and the state could realise freedom um, by, as, uh, as Rousseau put it, uh, forcing us to be free, or at least creating a space for freedom um, through, as Hegel claimed, civil society, where we choose between uh, different values in civil society and thereby realise our freedom. But the point is that History is the unfurling of freedom. And so the relevant claim for the theory of history, for the explanation of how history happens and why what happens in history uh, happens, is the claim that history is this progression of ideals uh, rather than the progression of interests and power and material forces. Hegel was a historical idealist, and he interpreted history in an idealist way. Uh, And he also projected this vision onto the state. Uh, Hegel's state is a bit like Hobbes's. For Hobbes, the state exists primarily to preserve our material existence, but Hobbes did also claim that the state was a mortal god. And Hegel also thought that the state was a way in which the state acted in the world. Um, and he saw the state, particularly the modern state, as the realisation of the highest ideals. And Marx came across Hegelianism at university, and he initially, initially was quite enthralled by it, um, particularly with the left Hegelian interpretation of Hegel. Uh, and he wanted, uh, as some of his early articles to the Rheinisch Zeitung, uh, the Rhine News, expressed. Marx was quite keen on the freedom of the, pr- of the press and other bastions of this emerging liberal radicalism, challenging some of the more repressive aspects of the Prussian state. So Marx did bega- begin his uh, career as a kind of left Hegelian, and Marx was keen on taking Hegel 
and trying to build on it. Um, but as Marx was leaving his university career and focusing more on uh, political things, on in particular political journalism, um, he started to think that maybe history wasn't just about the realisation of these ideals. While his earlier articles to the Rheinische Zeitung are focused on this more Hegelian and liberal interpretation to history, he began uh, in 1842 uh, to focus on things that are a bit more material. And I would suggest that Marx's transition from idealism to historical materialism begins with his engagement of what biographer Terrell Carver calls the social question, the question of what to do with all of the consequences that emerging markets were unleashing for politics and society. And in 1842, Marx penned an article about the Rhenish Parliament's debate about what was to happen to those who were stealing wood in this time of uh, scarcity um, after the agrarian crises of the 1820s. Marx complained that the state was, quote, making no attempt to afford equal protection to the forest owner and the infringer of forest regulations. But are not both the forest owners and the infringers of forest regulations citizens of the state? Marx sees uh, no reason for the forest owners alone to determine how punishment is dealt to thieves, exclaiming, how altogether foolish and impractical an illusion is uh, an impartial judge when the legislator is not impartial. Marx noted that there was therefore a conflict between the interests of forest protections and the principles of law. And Marx found that the assembly therefore put it to the vote whether the principles of law should be sacrificed to the interest of forest protection, or whether this interest should be sacrificed to the principles of law. And interest outvoted law. It was even realised that the whole law was an exception to the law, and therefore the conclusion was drawn that every exceptional provision it contained was permissible. The, provi the provincial assembly therefore completely fulfilled its mission in accordance with its function, it represented a definite particular interest and treated it as the final goal. In short, it is lawless natural instinct. And can lawlessness lay down laws? So Marx is starting as he transitions from the philosophic beginnings of his intellectual career to, to transition to a more engagement, a closer engagement with what's actually going on in the world. And a lot of people locate the source of that, that transition with Marx finding theoretical problems in Hegel's philosophy, and indeed he did. But I would suggest that another thing that turns him towards his later materialist theory of history is his realisation that in the real world, these mighty ideals of rationality are often quite hard to realise, and often when there's a contradiction between what ought to be the case and what is the case, in the real world, it is the reality that beats the ideal. 
It is, in this case, the material interests of the different competing parties that trumps the, uh, the legality, the law. Notions of right are subordinate to the practice of might. Uh, and, and this quite realist notion of might uh, trumping right, I think, underpins or at least begins Marx's later interest with the materialist theory of history. And Marx developed this later materialist theory of history when he transitioned from the first stage of his career, his philosophic and journalistic beginnings in the late 1830s and early 1840s, to his engagement in the mid to late 1840s with the question of what here theory was. So having done a somewhat of a detour um, from his Hegelian beginnings, he returns to the questions that Hegel was asking and tried to formulate somewhat of an alternative to those claims. And so Marx wrote a number of works um, in the 1840s, um, one of which was his critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, um, which he wrote in 1844, uh, where he claimed that in contrast to the claims of Hegelians that we can just criticise old, old ideas and practices and they will go away by force of our criticism, Marx said, the weapon of criticism cannot, of course, supplant the criticism of weapons. Material force must be overthrown by material force. And so Marx is starting to get to grips with the root of the problem in Hegel's philosophy, which is the notion that history is just determined by ideas. And Marx starts to think, um, in response to his engagement with political reality, that the, perhaps the problems in the world lie not in ideas, but in the material conditions of those ideas. So, for instance, one claim that is made in Hegel is that civil society is the way of marrying the individual to the collective, as we discussed on the previous episode of this podcast. And uh, Marx takes up that problem, uh, but makes it more problematic by saying that um, in a dialogue with Bruno Bauer, uh, another Hegelian at the time, that the notion that politics alone can save us forgets that law is not sufficient, precisely because of this problem that he earlier identified uh, with forest regulation, that often material interest just trumps what the law is trying to do and might trumps right. And so Marx asks, well, it seems that this development of this civil society isn't necessarily going to resolve the problem because these competing power interests permeate that society. And so neither the state nor civil society in themselves are capable of resolving contradictions in society. It, it seems that the separation of these two things is itself a problem. And so Marx asks, so where is the real possibility of German emancipation? We answer in the formation of a class with radical chains, a class in civil society that is not a class of civil society, of a social group that is the dissolution of all social groups, of a sphere that has a universal character, 
because of its universal suffering, and lays claim to no particular right, because it is the object of no particular injustice, but of injustice in general. The dissolution of society, as a particular class, is the proletariat. So Marx is starting to move from his, firstly his Hegelianism, to his departure from Hegel's idealism as he confronted political reality, to an answer to the question, well, what is it in material reality that is determining consciousness? What is it that is determining change and the contradictions of his his existing society? And Marx is here claiming that the class that would be the basis for resolving some of the contradictions in society is the class that is not the exploiting class, but in his view, the the exploited class. Uh, He says, for the proletariat is not formed uh, by the poverty produced by natural laws, but by artificially induced poverty. And so Marx is claiming that there is a certain set of contradictions in existing society which need resolving. And these contradictions are not just going to sort themselves out naturally or through the force of reason through history. And so Marx is trying to explain what's happening in society, firstly in terms of material conditions, and secondly in terms of the social relations which correspond to these conditions. And in the 1840s, he develops the theory of history in a couple of different ways, with publications like The Holy Family in 1845, The German Ideology in 1846, where he develops on these ideas. In The German Ideology, for instance, he claims that the basis for history is that we are living human beings, that we are biological creatures who need to reproduce ourselves. And this need we have basically for food and water and sustenance it is quite foundational. Um, but at the same time, he's claiming that while our biological constitution has an important role in shaping our sociology, it's not the only thing because he's claiming that the condition of these classes, the proletariat, which is in his view, the exploited class, and the bourgeoisie, the owners of capital, the exploiting class in his view, that these classes are not formed just because of some force of either uh, rational or natural necessity, that they're formed at least in part uh, by social contingency and by social institutions. And so this riddle or contradiction that emerges in Marx's thought uh, between the material conditions of our existence and the social relations, uh, which in his view are not really explained by ideas, by reason, by morality, uh, but by external circumstance, uh, by material and social reality. Marx, uh, even now, has to explain the way in which society and matter really interrelate. What is it about material conditions that has a role in society? Um, And I think Marx really unravels this problem in the third stage of his career, after in the first stage of his career, engaging with philosophy and political journalism, in the second stage, 
developing this early historical materialism in the mid to late 1840s. In the 1850s, he develops a mature historical materialism. And this is all while he is uh, partly in partnership with Engels, developing this attitude towards capitalism that is very oppositional. While very early in his career, he was quite sceptical of communism, or at least of existing instantiations of communism. In 1848, with the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels proposed what they saw as a, as a tenable version of communism, one that is rooted in the class struggle and history, rather than in contests between supreme ideals that is rooted in this material struggle, this power struggle, this interest struggle between two very modern classes. And Marx, even then, has to explain the way in which this all holds together and the way in which his materialist theory of history holds together. And I think in the 1850s, he really uh, gets the opportunity to really resolve this, partly because after the revolutions of 1848, there is somewhat of a subsidence of uh, interest in what's actually going on politically for Marx, partly because politics itself becomes somewhat less interesting between the revolutionary moments of 1848, where you have uh, these revolutions happening, uh, or these revolutionary uh, movements at least happening, um, across Europe. And 1871, with the Paris Commune, uh, perhaps the earliest example of something which resembles a Marxist or communist uh, uh, revolution in history. Uh, and between these two points, Marx has this ability to go away from uh, politics per se, the thing that initially sparked his interest in material reality and allows him to really contemplate theory a lot more. Um, a bit like uh, Plato's philosopher who leaves the cave and goes to contemplate the sun, uh, tries to leave their imprisonment in reality to, to contemplate forms. And ironically, what Marx is doing here is he's leaving political reality for a moment um, in order to explain in a very analytical and theoretical way, why material reality matters. And so, for instance, in 1859, uh, Marx publishes what is widely regarded as the definitive uh, presentation of his materialist theory of history, where he explains how material conditions and social relations jointly uh, determine how history progresses and determine our ideas and our consciousness which rather than in a Hegelian way seeing as uh, fundamental, Marx explains consciousness as something that's epiphenomenal, that is produced by our conditions. Uh, and so in 1859, Marx writes uh, a preface to a contribution to the critique of political economy. And uh, much of the rest of the text is actually uh, read less because Marx really developed his economics more in 1867 in Capital, which, uh, in Das Kapital, which is where he presents um, the real application of his materialist theory of history, the fourth stage of his career. But I think it's 1859 where we can see uh, a kind of crystallised, pure version of the theory of history. This is the, the third stage of his career, which I think is um, pretty underlooked 
people tend to just go straight to 1867 to capital. But it's in 1859 where Marx really ends up with a very simple uh, theory of history. And if I may, I will read uh, basically the, the passage that everybody really cites of this theory of history. Marx writes, In the social production of their existence, men inevitably enter into definite relations which are independent of their will, namely relations of production, appropriate to a given stage in the development of their material forces of production. The totality of these relations of production constitute the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure, and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. The mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political and intellectual life. It is not the consciousness of human beings that determines their existence, uh, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. At a certain stage of development, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms, with the property relations within the framework of which they have operated hitherto. From forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into their fetters. Then begins an era of social revolution. The changes in the economic foundation lead, sooner or later, to the transformation of the whole immense superstructure. In studying such transformations, it is always necessary to distinguish between the material transformation of the economic conditions of production, which can be determined with the precision of natural science, and the legal, political, religious, artistic, or philosophic, in short, ideological forms in which human beings become consciousness of this conflict and fight it out. Just as one does not judge an individual by what they think of themselves, uh, so one cannot judge such a period of transformation by its consciousness. But on the contrary, this consciousness must be explained from the contradictions of material life, from the conflict existing between the social forces of production and the relations of production. No social order is ever destroyed before all the productive forces for which it is sufficient have been developed, and new superior relations of production never replace older ones before the material conditions for their existence have matured within the framework of the old society. Humankind thus inevitably sets itself only such tasks as it is able to solve, since closer examination will always show that the problem itself arises only when the material conditions for its solution are already present, or at least in the course of formation. In broad outline, their Asiatic, ancient, feudal and modern bourgeois modes of production may be designated as epochs, marking progress in the economic development of society. The bourgeois mode of production is the last antagonistic form of the social process of production. Antagonistic not in the sense of individual antagonism, but of an antagonism that emanates from the individual's social condition of existence. But the productive forces developing within bourgeois society create also the material conditions for a solution of this antagonism. The prehistory of human society accordingly closes with this social formation. And this is Marx's yeah. basic statement of his theory of history in 1859, which he then elaborates on in 1867 in Capital, explaining how markets are the mechanisms by which classes relate to each other in this society, in bourgeois society. So making the theory a bit more precise, 
by applying it specifically to capitalism. While in 1859, the theory he develops is, at least in theory, applicable to all stages in human history, because it's saying that basically what history is, is a relation between material conditions or technology and social relations or classes and technology and class forces are the basic units of history in Marx's view. And this is perhaps the simplest statement of the materialist theory of history. Yeah, so to to slow that down, because the theory of history is the thing that students tend to really struggle with. Oftentimes students, Mm -hmm. when they read Marx, they come into it expecting to find what the media has told them they will find in it. They think that Marx is going to argue for some kind of egalitarianism and that it's all going to be very straightforward. Marx hardly talks about the concept of equality at all. In the Communist Manifesto, I believe equality is comes up twice, and each time it's preceded by bourgeois. Uh, for Marx, the issue is not equality. The issue is exploitation. And the reason that exploitation occurs is that exploitation is what's necessary to product to develop the productive forces. So how, how mm. the theory of history precisely works is that the mode of production, which consists of the productive forces and the relations, dictates that that is the base and that dictates the superstructure, which for Marx includes the state and the law and culture and ideas. Right. So. What are the forces of production? Well, that includes technology, that includes capital, land, those basics. The relations include things like markets, employer-employee relationships, right? So the kind of technology you have, the kind of economy you have, that tends to dictate the way that you organize markets, firms, all of that. And the roles that people have in markets and firms, the jobs they have, the functions they perform in society, that tends to shape the way they think and behave and the kinds of ideas that they have. So if you're someone who is a capitalist and you own a lot of stuff, living in that role tends to cause you to think in particular ways. And then also because you happen to have all of that stuff, you happen to have the capacity to influence political processes. Right. So a lot of Marxists refer to things like the bourgeois state, the idea that the state is possessed by the bourgeoisie because the bourgeoisie or the capitalists have the resources to intervene in the political process and corrupt it in various ways to their own benefit. This stems from not just a that capitalism gives some people the resources to potentially intervene in the political process, but also b that Being in that role, being in the role of capitalist, gives you a particular worldview, gives you a set of ideas which cause you to intervene in a particular kind of way. So it's not just that you are given the capacity to intervene, but also a particular mindset, a particular self-understanding, understanding understanding of your own interests, which causes you to intervene in a specific kind of way. Right? Hmm. Now... He also talks about this process of fettering and this development of history through stages. You, you go back to the ancient ancients who run on slavery, medievals who run on feudalism, then capitalism, and then on to socialism. Now, these stages work on the premise that you're going to develop the productive forces, the technology, as much as possible 
until you get to a point where the way that you're organizing the labor begins to conflict with the further development of the technology. And when the relations begin to conflict with what's necessary to move the forces forward, at that point, the development of the forces of technology becomes fettered, right? That's what this fettering is about. It's about our social structure preventing us from making material progress in this technological sense of developing the productive forces of increasing productivity. And when this happens, the demand for productivity will eventually, so the theory holds, overcome that social structure, right? So how does this cash out? Well, you can imagine a situation where, say, one state has developed a more efficient mode of production. Say a state has embraced capitalism, like England, maybe. And other states are still operating with a, a less productive economic system. What's going to happen is that the productive advantages that England will get from being capitalist will give England a lot more material power than other states. Those other states, if they want to compete with England, they're going to have to change to act more like England. So the, the existence of England as this more productive, more competitive state That will cause people in other societies to have the thought, to have the idea that they need to transition to something like what England is doing to be competitive with England, right? Now, some states that may not happen. They may not make that transition. Those states will eventually be colonized or subjugated by England because the power disparity between England and those states will be too immense, right? So in this way, you get an explanation for how a lot of imperial behavior happens. The imperial states are the states that are are more productive. They have a more productive model, and those models will tend to outcompete and overcome less productive models. And you can take that all the way back to, say, the slavery-based Greek city-states. The Greek city-states, because they have slavery, gain a productive advantage over the more egalitarian tribal societies which don't practice slavery. Because of this, slavery spreads throughout the ancient world. Either you adopt slavery to compete with the slave, the slaver city-states, or you don't adopt slavery, in which case one of those slaver city-states eventually comes into your area, fights you, defeats you, and enslaves you, and you cease to be a going concern, right? So you can already see how this has a pernicious effect because the society has to develop in whatever way allows the productive forces to develop, no matter how vicious or horrible that system might be. So the slave system is a vicious and horrible system, but it's more productive than the egalitarian tribal society. And because it's more productive than the egalitarian tribal society, everyone will be forced to adopt slavery as a, as a relation. Right? And when slavery becomes fettering, when it starts to be inefficient to do slavery compared with some new approach, because technological developments enable some other new approach then slavery will have to go away because it's no longer efficient. And those who continue to maintain slavery will be outcompeted and eventually subjugated, right? So this would be the Marxist explanation for the South's defeat in the American Civil War. The South, for Marxists, mm-hmm. has a fundamentally uncompetitive mode of production. And therefore, the demise of that mode of production is inevitable, either because the South will transition away from it to compete with the North, or the South will refuse to transition and then be subjugated by the North. Right. Which is what eventually Mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. So this is the way change occurs. It 
Now, there are, of course, objections you can make. It doesn't seem to be the case throughout history that we always move toward more productive social formations. Sometimes we go through long periods where there isn't very much development of the productive forces or where there's even backsliding in the development because there are other factors which influence whether or not we're able to develop the productive forces. And this includes things like changes in land fertility, uh, like those which occurred during the late Roman Empire, uh, changes in the political situation, invasions from external populations, uh, political breakdowns that prevent particular legal systems from obtaining. These kinds of variables don't tend to get discussed in relation to this general theory. And they do create a lot of cases where it potentially doesn't hold. Another issue with it is that very often the state is pitched in the theory as part of the superstructure and is not having very much agency. And this in part leads to not really taking into account how, say, power relationships among states uh, or the way in which a particular state is organized facilitate to some degree that state's ability to maintain a specific schema of relations of production. Of course, there's an acknowledgement here that there can be class conflict within states and that that class conflict can shape the way that the state develops. But by uh, very much limiting the role that the state plays in actually generating results in the system, you sometimes have some stuff that gets overlooked. And the Frankfurt School theorists during the 30s were very much interested in this in this particular problem because they saw Nazi Germany using the state to avoid falling into some of the pitfalls which Marx thought were otherwise inevitable. And similarly in the United States and Britain, Keynesianism and the New Deal overcoming some of the economic problems which otherwise would have manifested and potentially destroyed the uh, capitalist orders in those places. Marxists writing in the early 20th century have to explain why is it that there wasn't a worldwide revolution after World War I? Why is it that we got these social democratic or Nazi fascist regimes in the 30s that used the state as a kind of mediating force? How was the state able to do that? Why wasn't the state just completely dominated by the capitalists? And why didn't the capitalists just continue to press, press, press their advantage until the moment of revolution? Uh, all of those questions become very pertinent for Marxist theory going forward, right? But the, the key thing here is because it's not, uh, it's not about equality, because it's not about ideas. And equality is one of those revolutionary ideas that comes out of the 18th century. And the socialists who were arguing for equality we're arguing that this particular moral ideal, this, this ideal of equality, should be instantiated and that we can persuade people that it is morally undeniable that we ought to have a society that is equal. And for Marx, because that principle of equality potentially undermines the material interests of very powerful classes, it is not going to be possible for equality to be understood in such a way that it threatens those material interests. Instead, those material interests will shape the way the concept of equality is understood in such a way that it cannot meaningfully threaten them. So equality mm. will instead be understood in some way which is compatible with the mode of production, 
which empowers that yeah. class. And that means you get yeah. conceptions of equality like equality of opportunity or uh, equality of uh, one person, one vote or universal suffrage. These conceptions of equality do not necessarily give you any change in who owns the stuff, who makes the decisions. Mm. But they can give you the appearance of accomplishing that. And so for Marx, it was very important to not simply make socialism about equality because equality is such a malleable term. And of course, because the capitalists have a a superior position within the discourse because they have the resources to shape the discourse in their image, any attempt to bring about change merely through an idea will face the problem of of having that idea be tainted and reshaped and modified by the forces which Mm. control the discourse. It won't be some kind of free ideal deliberation in which the idea is able to fully manifest in all of its moral perfectness. It will instead be constantly bent and distorted to meet the material interests, material needs of the classes that are in the best position to appropriate those ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So instead of equality, mm-hmm. you get an argument that is in his early career very much about alienation and in his later career more about exploitation, right? So these are the two critiques of capitalism which Marx throws up. And to be clear, for Marx, capitalism is still better than every previous system because capitalism moves you one step closer to socialism. It moves you one step closer to having the kind of technology under which it actually becomes more efficient to adopt a socialist mode. But you have to get to this Mm. level. Capitalism has to bring you to the level where socialism becomes more efficient than capitalism. And if you try to do socialism prematurely before all of the productive advantages of capitalism have been squeezed out of it, then socialism will not work. And for this reason, according Mm. to the strict theory, you can't attempt socialism in a state which is not a fully developed, fully advanced capitalist state. And if you attempt to do that, that state will need help from those fully advanced states. And if it doesn't get that help, that revolution is not going to be successful. And that's why for Marxists, it was a real problem that, say, communism happened in the Soviet Union, but not in Germany. It needed to happen in Germany to be successful in the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was not a fully developed, advanced capitalist state. Right? You have to squeeze all the advantages out of the mode of production before you can get on to the next mode. You have to get to the point where fettering has occurred. And it's very difficult to tell when fettering has occurred. And every generation of Marxists wants to argue that, oh, there's fettering that's happening and now is the moment when the revolution is possible. But it can easily lead to premature revolutions which don't work and make the project look ridiculous. If you try to do socialism in the wrong set of conditions, you won't succeed. And that will make socialism look absurd. Mm. So instead, the the focus is is on alienation and exploitation. Alienation is this inability to be fully creative, to pick out what projects you're going to do, to carry them out in the way that you think best, and to completion. So to get out of alienation, you have to have control over how you spend your time, what you do during your day. And so Marx describes a person who hunts in the morning and fishes in the evening and does philosophy in the afternoon and it does lots of different things isn't defined by a singular role and so doesn't have a singular way of relating to the world which comes directly out of the social role right and it is in this sense more Mm -hmm. fully human 
You get a lot of this in the theory of alienation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The theory of exploitation focuses more on the power relationship between uh, workers and bosses or between workers and the mode itself, right? And there are, are, I think, a couple of ways of taking the theory of exploitation, depending on how seriously you take what's called the labor theory of value. The labor theory of value holds that the exchange value, what you sell something for on a market, is dictated by the amount of labor, the amount of work that's done to make that thing. And most economists do not agree with Marx's labor theory of value. And a lot of right-wingers will go, well, the labor theory of value is clearly junk, and therefore I don't have to read Marx or pay any attention to him. That's what the right, how mm. the right tends to react to this. Uh, mm. But the theory of exploitation can potentially freestand the labor theory of value. The, the theory of exploitation just depends on the idea that when there is, uh, when a decision is taken about how much to pay or to compensate a worker, that because the worker needs the means of subsistence, needs to be able to survive, the worker is in a disadvantaged position in any negotiation and therefore must make concessions and give up profit to obtain that means of subsistence, mm -hmm. right? Now, some people will look at that and go, okay, so the solution is to transfer the property from the capitalist class to the proletariat writ large. And if the proletariat controls, owns the means of production, then you've gotten out of the exploitation problem. Not necessarily, because let's say you have a set of cooperative, worker cooperatives, and they're all still operating in a market, but they're all cooperatively run. So every worker is a worker owner and there are no bosses. Even in this situation, the need for the different co-ops to compete with one another in a market will force the co-ops to extract surplus value from their members. But the members will be essentially extracting it from each other and from themselves. So in this situation, you don't have a clear employer-employee distinction, but you still have exploitation going on because the co-op has to make concessions to the need to keep the business alive. And to keep the business alive, you have to compete in this productive market schema. And that means that you're going to have to confiscate some of the output for investment in increasing the productivity of the business. So whether there's an individual capitalist who is confiscating that output to increase the productivity of the business, or it's happening in a co-op where everybody is collectively making the decision to do this, it's still the case that the worker is forced to take a bad deal because of the need of the business to compete in this market system that's all about who has the most productive business. What business is the embodiment of the most advanced set of forces of production available? So to really get to socialism, you have to get beyond uh, this need to continually increase the productivity. You have to get to a point where there's, say, for instance, a level of automation which enables human beings to uh, no longer need to be so involved in the productive process, uh, where there is a level mm. of abundance which makes it possible to meet a lot of people's basic needs without mm -hmm. having to continue to produce, 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 produce. 
And so when you're not yet at that level where robots and automation and so on can take a much bigger role in the productive process, you haven't yet squeezed out of capitalism all of the increase in productive power which capitalism is meant to deliver uh, for for Marx. Mm. So you've got to get to the point where capitalism has produced a sufficiently elaborate set of technologies that it becomes possible to begin this transition toward this situation where you can hunt in the morning, fish in the evening, read philosophy in the middle of the day without this undermining in any way your ability to survive. Right. Because to be able Mm -hmm. to make choices about your projects and pick whatever you want on the basis of whatever you want to do, it has to be the case that you don't need to compete in a market. You don't need to sell what you're doing on the market Mm -hmm. to be able to justify the project, because as soon as you uh, your projects feasibility is dictated by the market. At that point, the market will dictate your project for you and you won't be able to exercise those creative capacities. Mm. Right. So for this reason, you know, some Marxists do straightforwardly interpret this as it's all about who owns the the means of production, who owns the stuff. Uh, But I do think that you have to talk about markets themselves as potentially exploitative, regardless of how firms are organized or how the distribution of stuff is organized, because this theory is not principally about equality. It's not about ensuring an equal distribution of stuff that might to some degree come out of it or come alongside it, but that's not its principal goal. Its principal goal is to end alienation and especially in its later forms, exploitation. Those are the two main goals that the theory has, Mm. right? Now, those are normative goals, yet the theory of history is a descriptive theory. It's an attempt to explain how history actually develops. Mm -hmm. So when people Mm. are defending the theory of history, of course, some of their motivation is often that they want it to be true. They want it to be the case that capitalism will eventually produce the conditions for socialism, that eventually the contradictions in capitalism will make it impossible for capitalism to go forward, and and that socialism will be the inevitable only way that you can go forward from there. So how might Mm. might that look in practice, right? So one possibility is you have an immense level of technological development to the point at which it's just not very efficient to hire human beings anymore. And at Mm. this point, the employment as a means of guaranteeing the means of subsistence would begin to break down. People would really, large, large numbers of people would permanently not be able to find work. If you were giving them work to do, it would be useless, unproductive, unnecessary work. And so the relationship between the laborer and making stuff would start to decay. Now, at this stage, you would kind of have a choice. One option would be to transition to a system where the worker can obtain the means of subsistence without holding a a specific job, freeing the worker up to undertake other kinds of projects that are not productive or or at least do not have to be productive in the strict sense. Another option would be to dramatically reduce the population. Uh, to get rid of these people or to consider them useless. It's not obvious that in that situation of extraordinary technological development that everyone would just decide that the right thing to do is to distribute the output of the machines to the workers in such a way that the workers can then make free choices about what to do. It's entirely possible that people would make the opposite choice. In Isaac Asimov's foundation novels, uh, one of one of the later novels describes a planet called Solaria, where upon reaching this level of abundance, 
the rich split the world up into giant fiefdoms, each about the size of Wyoming, have those fiefdoms worked by robots, and they just get rid of everybody else who used to do the work because they consider those people unnecessary. Uh, Of course, being Asimov, he then has these people gradually genetically modify their bodies so that they can asexually reproduce, and then they're freed from ever having to talk to anybody ever again. A kind of hyper-libertarian planet where there is no society because it's just individuals living in Wyoming's full of robots. Uh, (laughs) But that gives you a little bit of of some of the ways in which you might imagine this could go wrong. There might be other ways that you could continue to develop the productive forces or continue to compete in some way, even when you have hyper, hyper developed technology. It's not obvious that you would have to choose socialism in that situation. Nonetheless, as a normative proposal, yeah. it often, uh, it's often very inspiring. And if you consider the possibility that the theory of history could be true, but that socialism might not be its output, the theory becomes more interesting. If the theory, it, it, on the theory of history, you can simply argue that the most competitive systems, the systems which give you the most power to uh, whoever is ruling or controlling that system or whatever, if it's a robot or a techno Caesar or something, uh, that the systems that are most productive will tend to prevail over the systems that are less productive in a kind of Darwinian sense. And that for this reason, we will often have very cruel, nasty systems because our systems are not regulated principally by what's nice or what we think is right or wrong, but by what's productive. Hmm. And that kind of totalitarian instrumentality where everything is dictated by a normativity that isn't really human, the need to be competitive, it's not necessarily something that human beings have chosen. Human beings often like to imagine, in a kind of Hegelian way, a world where we're not constrained by those kinds of sharp material constraints. We like to imagine worlds where Mm -hmm. there's no scarcity and so, you know, people have superpowers and people don't age and people don't get old and don't have to eat or they can eat ho- however much they want and they never get fat. We like to imagine all kinds of unrealistic material scenarios because those material scenarios enable us to build societies around values which conflict with productivity. And what this theory of history suggests is that it might not be possible to build a society that straightforwardly conflicts with productivity. Mm. And that that could be a real limiting element of the kinds of societies that are possible. So I think you can take it in this, okay, it leads to socialism direction, but you can also take it in a, in a darker direction and go, if it's really the case that the most productive society always wins, regardless of whether that society is very nice, mm. then that restricts the space for the achievement of any higher divine theological uh, or spiritual, or moral, philosophical values. You know, in Plato's medals, mm. uh, you know, the, the goal to do with pursuing the good for its own sake, that can only play a peripheral role if it is always the case that the society which takes care of survival and luxury uh, will prevail over the society which doesn't pay special attention to those things. 
So I think that's some of the the interesting stuff that comes out of it. Of course, when you're looking at at Hegel, uh, you know, Hegel is is hoping that there will be this unfolding through history of better and better ideas, better and better. Yeah. Right. If, however, our ideas are constrained by what's productive and what's productive conflicts with what's good, then we won't Mm. have better and better ideas. We'll have more and more productive societies and we will continue to rationalize those societies as better because that's how we can cope. And our morality mm. becomes an extended way of justifying and rationalizing what we're in. And Marx talks a little bit about some of this stuff. Marx talks about commodity fetishism. He talks about reification. Uh, well, he doesn't uh, speak a whole lot about reification, but this idea of reification comes up in a lot of subsequent Marxist thought. And it's this idea that human beings like to try to think of themselves in the roles that capitalism makes for them and to identify with those roles because it eliminates cognitive dissonance. You know, Lukács in particular, yeah, uh, the Hungarian yeah. Lukács talks about this, this reification, this need for the individual to convince themselves that the role that they're occupying really is what they are. Because to not think that way about it is to be constantly, it's to feel constantly subjugated. The only way to feel free in a world where the most productive social formation wins is to try to identify with one's role in production or to identify with the values which come out of pursuing production. And that leads to a more comfortable type of existence. And so Lukács was trying to come up with a way that nonetheless the subject would still choose to to drop the illusion and to see the world as it is. And and Lukács held that the worker knows on some level that the reification is a lie. The worker knows on some level what's really going on, but has to conceal it because it's just too painful and too miserable to acknowledge Mm. the actual setting, especially if you're not in position to change it. And I think for this reason, Marxism has... A, pro- a competitiveness problem as a as a frame for looking at the world, because once you take on board the possibility that the theory of history may not straightforwardly guarantee that socialism is going to happen, uh, once you take that on, if you really buy into this idea that what's productive really shapes the kinds of societies we can have, it's a very depressing thought. It tends to lead to a lot of misery in people who think this way, and I think that Marxists are not happy people. And they can't really sell Marxism as a fun lens through which to view the world. It's not a fun lens. It's a very depressing lens. And it's difficult mm. to stay in it for too long without getting really, really miserable. And I think that's why a lot of people in youth, when they come to university, they visit it and they play with it for a little bit. But once you leave university and you go into the world of work, you have to find a way to be okay. You have to reify the position you end up in because there isn't some Mm. obvious alternative to that position because the position of the proletariat in the last 40, 50 years has degraded so much so that there isn't any kind of real civil society apparatus for pursuing a socialist project now. Mm -hmm. And for all of these reasons, the way to, to live and to survive and to be comfortable and happy is to abandon Marxism. And, and get away from it and persuade yourself that it is false. That's the way to be happy. 
Well, yeah, and yeah. On on modern definition, modern definitions of happiness, right? More than to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the way to accomplish this reification, which conceals from you your own position in the system, and conceals from you whether you're the one who benefits or the one who is harmed. The concealment mm. conceals from the benefited the fact that their benefit is the ba- is on the basis of a form of slavery and exploitation, and it conceals from the one who is enslaved the fact of the enslavement. So the reification for everyone in the system is to the benefit uh, of them because it prevents them from having to really confront who they are, how this works, what it does. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's Uh, that's the thing that makes this really hard to popularize. So a lot of people are thinking, how do I make the Marxism or leftism something that lots of people do? And it's always going to struggle to be popular because unless you are at a moment in history where it actually seems like socialism is achievable and it actually seems like the theory of history could produce socialism in a realistic time frame, unless you feel that way about it, it's a very depressing worldview in which to in which to be. Yeah, yeah. And I guess a lot of these questions pivot on uh, contests between different ways of reading Marx that... Uh, some more idealist takes on Marx uh, tend to focus on the theory of alienation uh, developed in the 1840s, particularly the 1844 economic and philosophical manuscripts. Um, And uh, another way of focusing on Marx is on the theory of exploitation, the application of the theory of history, uh, particularly in 1867, Das Kapital. but the thing that's, of course, missing in both these discussions, the more philosophical discru- discussions of the theory of alienation and the more economic discussions of the theory of exploitation, where often the theory of alienation is used in lots of different ways, sometimes to defend liberal values, and the theory of al- exploitation tends to just be more of a straightforward boxing match between Marxists who love the theory and liberal economists who think it's flawed because of the theory of uh, value and so it just becomes a kind of boxing match that leads nowhere uh, yeah I think that the labor problem, theory of yeah. value has done a lot of damage to people's ability to engage with this because yeah, yeah, yeah. so many people get caught up on arguing about whether the labor theory of value is true and it, it just doesn't have to be true for the theory of exploitation to be compelling all you really yeah, need for yeah. the theory of exploitation to be compelling is just the idea that Because the worker needs to obtain the means of subsistence, the worker is not in position to agree to anything in a fair way, Mm. right? And that's even true if there is no employer, even if it's a co-op, a worker co-op, because the worker has got to agree to whatever is necessary for the business to survive in a competitive market economy, Because if the worker doesn't Mm. agree to that, the business will fail and the worker will be denied the means of subsistence. Mm. What the worker is able to do is is very, very constrained. And that's really the central problem. A lot of people talk about, well, it's an agreement. You know, you, you uh, John, uh, uh, Robert Nozick talks about justice in transfers. Well, you agreed to this transfer, so what results from it is just. But very few of us think that if there's a gun to your head, that an agreement that you make is valid. And under 
capitalism, there is always a gun to your head when you're making a decision about whether or not to work. And the gun to your head is that ultimately, if you refuse work for long enough, if you don't agree to the conditions of work which are available to you, you will eventually be stripped of basic things that you need to survive. Food, housing, electricity, whatever the set of things is, you'll be stripped of it. And you'll be immiserated to the point where your misery will compel you to agree. Mm, yeah, and, yeah. and oftentimes, I think the people who most honestly argue against it go, well, what about incentive? Don't we need things to get made? And Marx would not disagree with that. Marx would say, well, of course we have to, we have to make stuff. And these stages of history are this long process of developing the forces of production, developing technology to the point where it might be possible for us to be less heavily constrained by this need to generate incentive to get stuff done. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? So the argument about incentive, it's going to be compelling as long as you're living in a world where technology has not progressed to the point at which you could imagine, even if most people didn't care if anything got done and weren't focused on it, that quite a bit could get done through the use of machines. And once we get to a point where people feel that way, and increasingly some people do, and people look forward to worlds where there, there are more options in that regard, at that point the incentive argument becomes less relevant. The incentive argument appears relevant because of the particular material situation we're in, the particular kind of technology we have. We still think it's the case that if lots of people stayed home from work, or at least some of us think it's the case, that if lots of people stayed home and didn't work or just did whatever they felt like doing, that that would mean that our society would no longer be able to produce even basic things or to meet even moderate standards of living. At some point, if technology and the forces continue to develop, we'll stop feeling that way. And I think a lot of people already have stopped feeling that way and go, hey, actually, there's a lot more. We have a lot more resources and a lot more capacity than we realize. And, you know, but this is always a, a tenuous debate. Exactly when do you reach that level of output where yeah, it's possible yeah, yeah. to potentially make this move without a collapse in productivity? Uh, and also the technology is right, right. relevant in terms of having enough information to potentially run the economy in some other transitional way. So when we talk about you know, transitional ways out, uh, what, what does socialism look like? Marx, in the earlier work, gives you a, this idea of the hunting in the morning and fishing in the evening and doing lots and lots of different things as kind of the final end of communism. Later in his work, he has this argument, the, the no blueprints argument, that says that people in an earlier stage of history, at an earlier time, their ideas are shaped by the productive forces of that time, the mode of production that prevails at that time. And that therefore, uh, they can't give blueprints to the proletarians of the future who will be operating in a different material situation where different things are possible. And therefore, they shouldn't try to prescribe what precisely socialism ought to look like. Now, that argument is sometimes felt to be a dodge. And to some degree, it is a dodge because it avoids Marx having to commit to a particular mode of socialism, which we can then analyze as valid or not valid, plausible or not plausible. But it also, I, I do think, makes it an interesting and valid point that the ways in which one might imagine socialism could be done will change depending on the technology that's available. And one basic example is the use of computers and information technology to give governments much more information about what the level of demand is for goods, to give governments much more 
ability to regulate markets if those markets are occurring, uh, if those transactions are occurring over computer systems. So to give you an example, if you've noticed Netflix, right, they have this huge big data on what movies people watch. And they use this data to decide what movies to make, right? Now, they do that in a centralized way. Another way that they could do it is they could have a pot of money and they could say, you have to get X number of streams to get X number of dollars from us, up to some cap or some limit, right? Now, because they can count the streams through their computer system, they're able to get a very precise number on how popular any given thing is. It would be possible technologically to implement such a system. And under that system, Netflix would not have to dictate what movies people make. It would just have an algorithm that it uses, right? Now, that's what YouTube does more or less, isn't it? YouTube has an algorithm that it uses to distribute money to creators. And the creators make content under submission to the rules of those al of that algorithm. Now, that YouTube algorithm is designed by YouTube on the basis of what will make the YouTube company money. It's not designed on the basis of political demands from people about what they actually want out of YouTube. And that's why there's a big discrepancy between the kind of content YouTube makes, which is the kind of content advertisers will advertise on, and the kind of content users of YouTube want. And that comes out of YouTube being a private firm that's in a market. But you could imagine, say, a state which had set up some kind of pot of money that to give to content creators and some kind of publicly accessible uh, formula that you might democratically determine or democratically adjust over time. And you could use that to fund and support art projects. Now, that is a whether you like that model, you don't like it, you know, and you might not for all kinds of reasons, that's a kind of technological model which would be totally impossible in the 70s. You couldn't even imagine running any sector in that way in the 70s. And no one in the 70s could have proposed that socialism might look like that without having a great, great deal of foresight, right? Now, it's much more easy mm. to imagine something which involves that kind of technology, right? That's the... Mm value of the no blueprints argument is that it makes space for the new technology as the forces continue to develop to generate new ideas in our heads about how society might ought to be organized. And that's the hope in this theory. No matter how hopeless it might seem to you that right now out of your condition, socialism might be produced, no blueprint says the forces are going to continue to be developed by capitalism. And eventually those forces will develop in ways which make stuff that you can't imagine possible. And that's the important thing. Yeah, yeah. Stuff that you cannot imagine. Stuff that even science fiction writers would not properly imagine. Right? And that mm. is, if there's hope in the theory, that's where the hope comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I guess that's the, that's the kind of fourth pillar of Marx's, um, Marx's project. You've got the theory of alienation the theory of, uh, of exploitation, the theory of history, and you've also got this theory of revolution and what might happen after the revolution. Um, and broadly speaking, the theory of alienation um, comes first in his career. It's the thing that he um, is earliest to develop, followed by the theory of history uh, and followed by the theory of exploitation and the development of the theory of revolution particularly in volume three of Capital, with the argument that uh, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall over time is going to be the seeds of capitalism's uh, 
downfall. But all of these arguments in some sense pivot on or, or, or orbit around the theory of history, which I, I think is yeah, most clearly developed in, in, in the uh, mid to late 1840s, but particularly 1850s and the 1859 preface. But at the same time, the theory of history has, uh, has developments at other parts of his career. And I think that just as there are um, these different theories being developed at different times in his career, the theory of history itself um, comes at slightly different times. And I think there are, I think we've basically uh, found that there are probably three basic elemental claims to the theory of history um, developed, I think, respectively at the second, third, and fourth stages of his career. And so let's call this the the, the, the early statement, uh, the early bit of the theory of history, the middle bit and the late bit, um, with the, the, the earliest, uh, or perhaps let's start with the latest, the, the, the latest um, part of his career. The, uh, uh, he claims that markets are the central uh, mechanism under capitalism for developing the technological forces. But he's only able to make this claim after he makes the claim. Um, so that's the claim that he makes really in 1867, though he has developed it before. In 1867, it's where he really fleshes out what that means and how the market is meant to operate. But in 1859, he makes this claim that technology and class are the basic units of, of history. And it's on that claim that a lot of the other claims pivot. But then the, the very first claim that he makes, um, the claim that he starts to make in his uh, critique of um, Hegel um, in, the, in, in, in the 1840s, and that he elaborates in... Uh, in other texts in the 1840s, uh, is, is the claim that material conditions determine ideas. Um, so there are basically these three claims. One, matter determines mind rather than mind determining matter in the Hegelian way. Conditions determine consciousness. So he claims that he has turned Hegel on his head rather than consciousness determining uh, conditions. Conditions for Marx determines co uh, determine consciousness. And then the second claim is that technology determines the class structure, uh, which in turn determines the state structure and the philosophic, artistic culture of the society. So technology and class are the dynamo of history. Technology and class are the, are, are the relevant material social conditions of history. And then the last claim that he makes that markets are the mechanism under capitalism of technological development and class exploitation. The market relation between labourer and owner is the basic class relation of capitalism. And I think it's easiest to accept that last claim. In some senses, capital, though the labour theory of value is very controversial, the focus on markets isn't very controversial, uh, and the focus on exchange value being very central, and commodities being central to capitalism isn't too, isn't too controversial. Indeed, it, capital really is Marx's version of uh, the political economy of Adam Smith and David and David Ricardo, uh, with a twist. And the twist is the focus on class, which comes out of the, the theory of history. So this last claim that markets are central is, in some sense, the least interesting uh, 
part of his theory because it's the most commonly accepted one. Uh, it's the second claim, the emphasis on technology and class, which is somewhat more controversial because it's more difficult from a liberal perspective to accept that class plays a role. But the claim that technology plays a role is it is somewhat um, is somewhat comprehensible. So that can be accepted by some. And I think the most controversial claim, in, at least in some respects, is that it's the material conditions which determine consciousness that matter well, determines mind. I think mind. that there, there's a lot of overlap with Hobbes because for both Hobbes and Marx, mm. it's the need to survive, to survive, to get the means of subsistence, which gives rise to everything else and is the thing which ultimately determines what succeeds and what fails. And that is mm, yeah. is the thing that unites those two to a degree. I think that yeah, yeah. Also, also worth pointing out here. You know, we have kind of why he picks it the German idealists and why he's not satisfied with the German idealists. Though so it it must be said that insofar as he pictures socialism as still eventually coming out of capitalism, he is still proposing that there will be some kind of progress through history, even if that progress is slow or delayed. Yeah, yeah. There's also the way that all of this work relates to uh, the Greeks and to the non-Marxist Germans who come after. So I, I want to say a little mm -hmm. bit about each of those things. So for one, with the Greeks, you do get some discussion of, of domination in Marx, which is somewhat reminiscent of Greek conceptions of being freed from slavery, being freed from having to be a means to someone else's ends. And the worker is kind of compelled uh, to be a means to someone else's ends. Um, rather than able to make their own choices. But in Greek thought, this is all anchored around the pursuit of the good. So the free virtuous person is supposed to make decisions about what to do on the basis of the good as, as they understand it. And you don't get a big mm. role for the good in this theory. It's not a very uh, capital T truth heavy uh, moralistic theory, which is not at all what a lot of people would expect given the moral... The, the very, very moralist understanding of Marx, which is common in popular media. Uh, you don't get a whole lot of emphasis on the good here. So there, the teleology is what's productive. It's not what uh, tends toward the good of some kind of collective. Indeed, Marx is really deconstructing the idea of the state as anything more than the product of the class relations. So for Aristotle, the city is the thing which ultimately creates the, the yeah. possibility of doing philosophy, the possibility of doing what's good, and the city creates and maintains and defends the different roles in society that are necessary to create the conditions under which philosophy can be done and the oscillation between virtuous action and virtuous contemplation can occur. With Marx, the city is reduced to just the product of the class relations. And I think that this is another right. area where Marx deviates significantly from Hegel. For Hegel, the creation of these of these roles in these different mediating civil society organizations, that's supposed to reunite the individual with the collective in some way. So that even if the individual is not a big believer in, say, the state, the individual can still be reunited with the common good through the mediating institution of the firm of the market. For Marx, mm. what the firms and markets have done is create these sharply divergent, opposed classes. And these opposed classes are interested in appropriating the state and using the state to pursue their own interests. So there is no sense of collective good or common good here. There's no sense of capital G, capital T truth, capital G good, uh, because 
for Marx, what modernity has done is create these kind of a very, very straight, strict, straightforwardly material class interests that the state is simply mm. something they fight over. And if you look at the late Roman Republic, where you get the conflict of the orders in Rome, you get that kind of conflict among classes. But the Romans write about this as, as a problem, as something which has broken the unity of the state. And the supposition there is that there is some possibility of having a state that's unified that doesn't have that kind of division in it. Marx, by the mm. time you get that kind of unity, you also get what he calls the withering away of the state. There's a dictatorship of the proletariat, but the purpose of the dictatorship is to set up the withering away of the state. So the collectivity for Marx is not the return of the Greek polis or the Roman res publica. It's eventually creating a condition that is stateless. And from the point of view of theorists who think that the state plays a much more fundamental role in preserving and protecting any kind of system which keeps people from exploiting one another, that looks a bit tenuous. Yeah. When we're yeah. comparing Marx to other Germans who come after, right, it's important to note that for uh, Weber to fail to recognize that the collective is the ultimate source of, of whatever is good in your life is a sign of immaturity. So Weber often attacks the Marxists on the basis of their being immature because they prefer the class interest to raison d'etat, to the interests of the state. Now, for the Marxists, the response is straightforward and obvious. Because the state is possessed by the bourgeoisie to say that you ought to subordinate yourself to the interests of the German state is to say that you ought to subordinate yourself to the interests of the bourgeoisie. Straightforward and obvious, right? Now, mm -hmm. if you have that old, a more old-fashioned Greco-Roman conception of what the state can potentially be, or even a Hegelian notion of how you can make the modern state into something which gets us back towards some kind of unity, then you'll have a very different understanding of what else might be possible from the understanding put forward there. Uh, the uh, additional... Uh, additional point of comparison I want to make is to Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt is very critical of Marx mm -hmm. because she objects to the theory of human nature that gets advanced early in Marx's work, where Marx is talking about how ideally you would be able to you know, be a craftsman and to craft all kinds of different things and to do all sorts of different work and to not be confined to a role. For Arendt, that is making human life about making stuff, about forcing external reality to conform to the will, the creative will. And for Arendt, that isn't the primary purpose of life. For Arendt, the primary purpose of life is coming together and uh, making decisions together collectively. And for her, Marx's ideal is too individualistic because it involves individuals kind of off on their own making stuff that isn't, mm -hmm. isn't dictated by what's productive, therefore isn't dictated by social need. And yes. she sees it as kind of hyper-individualistic with these individuals imposing themselves on reality. So uh, that's mm. another critical perspective. Of course, from the Marxist point of view, the response to Arendt is that Arendt's theory concerns itself only with the kind of political action which is possible once the basic needs are taken care of. And Arendt right. makes a point to say that those needs, what she calls the social, social needs, are not part of politics. And she mm. doesn't really account for how they are to be managed such that her public realm can come into being. So there are mm -hmm. Marxist retorts to, to those positions, but it's interesting how 
some of these other Germans think about it a bit differently. I think that ultimately, yeah, yeah. you know, if I were to venture an opinion here as we come toward the end of the show, uh, ultimately, if you are to create some something else in the mode of what Aristotle or Weber or Hannah Arendt wants, to do that, you have to first answer this question of subsistence. How are mm-hmm. you going to make sure that people have access to the better kind of life that you want them to have that goes beyond using your creative energy to make stuff, right? If you mm-hmm. have other values, well, first, to, to give people the ability to pursue those values, they need subsistence. And that isn't properly accounted for in a lot of these other works. And it's always centered in Marx's account. And that's one of the very valuable things about it. Uh, so you need, to, you need to account for subsistence. And secondly, mm-hmm. how are you going to maintain that? Because if Marx's theory of history is right and what's productive tends to prevail, then these other social models, which are about trying to create space for philosophy, about trying to create space for a pluralistic agonism among different ideas, uh, these theories, because they're not built around what's productive, the theory of history suggests that they will produce social formations that will be uncompetitive and that will tend to fail. And the only way that they could succeed would be to somehow reconcile them to this need to achieve the most productive kind of society that can therefore defend itself against all comers. And I think that that challenge from Marx, that very realistic Marx-Hobbes challenge, is a valuable one for theorists who are trying to produce more all-encompassing, all-inspiring social systems to bear in mind. And I do think that there's an effort on the part of the Greeks in particular to navigate that. And, of course, some effort on the part of Hegel and and Weber to navigate that. But do those navigations succeed? For Plato, Mm -hmm. Plato acknowledges that his ideal city decays through a cycle of regimes into a city which is obsessed with luxury. And for Plato, even the best city will eventually fall victim to something that is not entirely dissimilar to this productive impulse to constantly make more and more luxury, more and more consumer goods. Mm-hmm. And that suggests that maybe there's something to this Marxist critique of ideal societies, that if ultimately the only kinds of societies that can survive are the productive ones, even very inspiring societies will eventually fall victim to that constant need to appease production, not just because of, say, drives for luxury or comfortable living, but because if you don't administer to production, if you live in a world where there are other societies that compete with your own or that can potentially compete with your own, you always run the risk that those societies will choose to pursue production, become more efficient, and then begin to subjugate and destroy the more idealistic way of life. Mm-hmm. And even projects which Marx himself supported, like the Paris Commune, fall victim to that. The Paris Commune was just much too small in scale and scope to withstand competition from the French state. And this need, you know, Marx is always concerned with this need to actually make the thing stick and survive. And that's something that theorists can can benefit greatly from. So while I would, I, I think I would say that those are the, two of the things that are most valuable about Marx. And the two areas where I would be most critical would be, A, I think that the state does not get 
a big enough role in the theory because the state is too often just treated as epiphenomenal and just a consequence of the class situation. And there are yeah, other he's, yeah. there are other things states deal with, like interstate competition, the, the need to compete with other states right. and potentially make war right. on them that do. Yeah cause states often to intervene in their class relations and discipline them. And the period, you know, the 30s uh, through to the 70s, where there was contraction in economic inequality and some lessening of severity of exploitation, also corresponded with the era of the World Wars, the Cold War, and a lot of interstate competition that gave states other things to worry about and gave the elite other things to worry about apart from just extracting as much uh, labor from workers as possible. They also had to worry about the survival of their states uh, and the survival of the world system and the whole system of trade. And when they're confronted with those kinds of risks, then they have to make concessions to workers to get workers to continue to participate in that system and to continue to support it in moments of crisis where if the workers withdraw support, like in a war, um, where the whole thing can come apart quite quickly. So I would make that point. States matter more than this theory tends to suggest, and later Marxists have tried to correct this and, and take a bigger role for the state in the theory. Uh, the other point of criticism I would make is that it you, you get very limited role in the theory for what we would, you know, what Plato refers to as the silver drives, uh, honor, glory, social status, drives that are less intimately mm. connected with material position. Now, in our contemporary well, yeah, society, yeah. what we honor and what we tend to reward socially is often very material. It's often wealthy people that we put up as models. Um, but in other societies, there has been more of a conflict between those things. Mm -hmm. And yeah. often in our society, we try to use recognition or status as a leverage point to get people to pay less attention to their material situation or to the way that they're being treated. And if we take mm. Lukács' idea that people are looking to reify, they're looking to find excuses for their material situation, if we take that seriously because they don't want to be immiserated by the reality of it, then what that would imply is that very often people are going to want to retreat into status-based politics as a way of feeling like they're getting somewhere and feeling like they're being seen and heard and recognized when the material situation is too bleak for them to uh, maintain any hope and any change there. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are the mm -hmm. two potential weaknesses. Of course, both of these things are things which later Marxists have tried to deal with, especially Marxists focusing on ideology. But of course, once you start focusing on ideology and ways in which people are made to reify their circumstance, once you start to do that, it becomes very easy to begin to slip back toward Hegel's position of a kind of cultural interplay of ideas. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that the, the Marxists who have made the best work of this, I think that what they have tended to do is to talk about these ideas, these reifying ideas, in a way which still connects them to their origin point in the material story. So, for instance, if there's an ideology that is propagated in society, it's propagated through, say, a media which is owned by rich people. The uh, mediums that we consume, the media that we consume, is shaped in all sorts of ways by the distribution of, of power in our society and by the classes that hold that power. 
So, for instance, with social media, one of the issues we've had over the last few years is that social media became a very wide open space for a little while, a very little while. And there has since been an effort to kind of close that back up and regulate that space much more heavily through gatekeepers, right? So one of those gatekeepers is that now Facebook will accept money to promote your content in the feed, right? So that means that people who have money can now move up the Facebook feed, whereas in Facebook's very early days, when it wasn't accepting all of this money from advertisers and, and post promoters, it was much less obviously rigged in terms of what content would come up. And now more recently, there's also a lot of pressure on Facebook from traditional media, which is preponderantly owned by rich people, to regulate speech and censor people on Facebook and kick them off if they say things that they don't like. And to equate Mm -hmm. all forms of speech that they don't like on Facebook to uh, proto-fascism as a way of legitimating Mm -hmm. this process of kicking off anybody who would not be approved of by gatekeepers employed by rich people. Right? So... When we talk about ideology and we talk about ideas that are constraining, it's also important to talk about how do those ideas come about? How do those ideas get disseminated? And that means talking about the material political economy of the university system, of the media. Uh, It's not simply the case that we are in some kind of ideal deliberation or anything remotely close to it where we can just argue with people and the best ideas win. And sometimes there's a little bit of a slip back toward this position that the discourse will just necessarily improve over time. And if you think that the discourse will just necessarily improve over time and that the good ideas always win, uh, no matter how much intervention there is by rich people's money in the discourse, uh, that's, that's when I think that too much Hegel has come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess it is necessary to justify the supposition in the first instance that it is uh, matter rather than mind that determines the course of history. And I think there are basically two arguments that can be offered for this, aside from the emphasis on survival in Hobbes, is the notion that I think broadly you get from Marx and Hobbes that there is more matter in the universe than mind, that that consciousness, or at least the uh, high uh, or sophisticated degree of consciousness that you get in human beings, that that exists in a relatively small space, not just of the universe, but of, of, of the earth. <laughs> you, we, the consciousness, or at least sophisticated consciousness, is attributable to our, uh, to our brains on some level, or at least to some part of our bodies, of which our brains are, of course, one. And uh, in this way, uh, since there is more matter in the universe than mind, it would make sense that matter trumps mind in causal power. And of course, another version of this argument, which is perhaps a bit more sophisticated, is the argument in, uh, in psychology and biology that what consciousness is, is just a, an epiphenomenal expression of brain processes. So you could explain all the thoughts that we have in terms of the neural uh, circuits in our brain, in terms of our, yeah, of our biology and our psychology. And in this way, when we talk about consciousness, we're just talking about what is basically an epiphenomenon. What is the, uh, as Gilbert 
Ryle put it, the ghost in the machine, and taking this Hobbesian view of the universe to its conclusion, where everything is linked to each other, not by intentions and desires, but basically by mechanisms, it, it, it makes sense to see consciousness as just an expression of what are in fact material flows. Um, and, and so that's the perhaps general argument for why uh, matter may determine mind. And I think that the second argument to this effect uh, that might have um, some persuasiveness to social political theorists um, is that um, taking this uh, view, both in ancient and modern philosophy, that there are uh, two kinds of cognitions: there are there are passions, and there are and there is reason. And uh, reason is a kind of reflexive capacity we have to uh, which in some sense distinguishes us uh, from other animals, the, the ability to reflect on our condition um, and the ability to put this into speech um, and reason, reason and speech together are often taken to be the two things that might distinguish, distinguish human beings or at least distinguish uh, human beings and uh, some uh, related or at least possible uh, forms of life. Um, and it seems to be the case that when reason conflicts with the passions, the passions tend to trump reason. And this goes back to biology in some way, that, uh, that our instinct uh, is in some sense primary because uh, we have evolved these capacities uh, to think and reflect on our condition as a result of this long period of natural evolution, um, which is primarily about uh, survival and marks uh, Red Darwin as being a bit of a Hobbesian, as seeing uh, this kind of competition among life to survive in the natural world as being a bit like a Hobbesian war of all against all. Uh, and he also thought the market was a bit like this, um, but he also thought society as a whole and evolution as a whole, uh, both natural and social, was quite competitive because the thing that links natural and social evolution together is the natural need to survive, to reproduce ourselves. Um, and so these are perhaps two arguments that can be given and the emphasis on passions over reason on... Uh, survival above other needs uh, perhaps has some important implications because if passions in general trump reason uh, because of survival needs ultimately, it doesn't mean that people always have to be worrying about survival for the materialist theory of history to be true. Indeed, though our passions may ultimately be about survival, the point is that whatever is our immediate concern whether it's the literal passion to stay alive or other passions like for status or for luxury, these passions have evolved to service survival needs, to reproduce ourselves to, as more modern contemporary understandings of natural evolution hold it, to replicate our genes. And in order to do that, you have to reproduce yourself biologically. Um, but it doesn't need to be the case that one is always thinking about one's own survival, just as it's not the case that uh, you always have to be thinking about 
your genes, it's instinctual. And so you don't have to have that passion to survive in order for the materialist theory of history to hold. All that matters in this theory for it to hold is that passions in general precede our reason and that therefore it's not reason unfurling through history that is really what's going on here. It's lots of different passions and instincts competing with each other. And it happens to be the case, as Benjamin pointed out, that we have passions uh, that do go beyond survival, like for status and uh, uh, like for luxury. But the fact that these passions are ultimately there in service of survival means that passions do have this kind of primacy over reason, at least reasoning concerning moral ends. And it's the case that with reason, that more instrumental kinds of rationality, reason concerning the passions, tends to defeat more philosophic kinds of reason, unfortunately. And in this way, the materialist theory of history is a bit pessimistic. They claims that ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, we, we can't just think of a better world and it will come into existence. In reality, we have to attend to the actual desires people have as a result of natural and social evolution. Yeah, and that kind of returns us to Plato's critique of rhetoric, right? The reason that the philosopher tends to lose in the debate is because the philosopher is not trying to administer to the drive for honor, the drive for luxury, or the drive for survival. And those drives are, in general, stronger And so what people will take to be the most reasonable view will tend to be the view which accords with their strongest drives. And since Mm. the strongest drives are rarely a pure good for its own sake, uh, platonic gold drive, since that is rarely the drive that is strongest in most people, the kind of argument that people will take to be reasonable or rational will usually be about how to fulfill one of those other, what, what Plato would consider, lower drives. Mm-hmm. And both yeah. Hobbes and Marx, in directing us toward the lower drives as imposing real constraints on the kinds of states and societies we can have, I think both offer a helpful corrective to those who are imagining that we can just straightforwardly build a society based on what we think is good. But of course, it's also Mm. important to remember that we human beings do continue to have thoughts about what is good. And we do often think about the good for its own sake, independent of honor, survival, and desire. It's not the case that that is not something that we can think about, or not an idea that we have, or not something we can act on the basis of. It's just that to be able to be good, you have to have a lot of other more... uh, are often more fundamental or stronger drives met first. And they're not more fundamental because they're superior or higher. They're more fundamental because in practice, it's very psychologically unlikely that a person will be able to devote their attention to the good if these other drives are not met because the body will just not cooperate. You know, Plato's Phaedrus with the horses, uh, the winged horses pulling the rider up above Mm. the clouds to see what's going on. If your horse is a broken leg, or a broken wing, no matter how much you try to control the horse, no matter how good the rider is, the horse is not going to be able to fly the rider up above the clouds to see the truth and to see the good. Uh, You have to take minimally good care of the horses to stand any chance of learning anything about what's good or true, much less acting upon what's good or true. 
And so I, I would say that these theories should not be taken to, to mean that there is no space at all for thinking about the good or thinking about morality as important and meaningful things or making decisions on the basis of these things. But they should remind us that if your horse is dead or if someone has shot your horse or your horse is badly injured or sick, you aren't going to be able to do it. And these other drives have to be attended to because we are not gods. We're human beings. We are stuck between beast and God. And it is only when the beast needs are met that we can properly attend to our more ambitious aspects. Yeah. And so and all the beasts yeah. needs in that met, not just not just some narrow set yeah, of the beasts. Not just needs. survival, not just luxury, but recognition and status too. Uh, they do matter, and, yeah. and people do care about yeah. them. And so, for the, for those reasons, we need the helpful correction of these very austere, very realist, materialist theories like Hobbes or Marx. But we can't stop there because it is still the case that human beings will not be satisfied uh, by this alone. We do still need to imagine that what we're doing is good in some way. And we aren't, we aren't going to be, some of us will, but uh, others will not be fully convinced that pursuing honor and money and survival alone is enough to make a life meaningful. We need conceptions of the good. And we, we have to, at least some of us do. Some of us need conceptions mm. of the good. Yeah. And it's politics. I'd like to think it's everybody, yeah. but it's at least some of us. Yeah. And I think in a way, the thing that distinguishes sociology from biology, the thing that distinguishes human beings from animals, most of all, I guess, is on the one hand, these uh, passions that aren't directly about survival though they have evolved for the sake of survival, like luxury and honour, and um, also the capacity to reflect on our condition and to have concepts like the good. Uh, but the way in which these passions are related to each other, so the capacity to relate it to each other in a dynamic way, the capacity to have politics seems to be the distinguishing feature of human beings in a way, because it's only through politics that you can tie the body and the soul together, that you can satisfy these needs that Marx emphasises, that these material needs, these needs which in some respects seem to make us seem closer to, uh, much, much closer to beasts than gods. But it, it's... The point about politics is that it's a balancing of these different material needs. And it's the fact that we have these different material needs. And then the fact that when we balance these material needs, we can reach something beyond the material. And that balance is that tenuous. Is, yeah. And that's why it's so easy to say, yeah. well, the state is just captured by some class. Right. Right. And that's but the sense in which yeah, Marx and, Marx and to some degree Hobbes are more extreme materialists, while Plato and Aristotle were more moderate materialists in their emphasis on balance and balancing different material needs with each other. That's politics for them. Well, and, and finding that balance is a very difficult thing, as we've, we've talked about mm -hmm. so many times before. But I, I do think yeah. that uh, there is some value in trying to find some kind of state, some kind of order that can meet all these drives. And I don't think that it's going to be the case that statelessness or the withering away of the state is going to get that job done. 
We may need a very different right. kind of state from the kind which we have. Uh, we may even need a state that is different in ways that you and I can't imagine from our standpoint in history. But mm. some kind of order is is still going to be necessary. And that's something that I think the Greeks were always very aware of, that you did need some kind of polis or, or public to do that. Yeah. And that polis or public, of course, cannot be captured by the oligarchs or by the demos. Both of those regimes are looked upon by Plato and Aristotle as, as defective. Aristotle's mm. mixed regime it still gives much too much weight to the rich. And Plato's mm. Callipolis is by Plato's own admission doomed to fail. But both of them had the right <laughs> objective here in that you do yes. have to come up with a kind of city which does properly balance these drives to create yeah. space for ideally not just some of us, but all of us, or at least as many of us who, who have an interest in it, uh, to pursue Projects that are not just about uh, spending your time doing whatever you want all day, although making your own decisions is a part of it, but mm -hmm. being yeah. able to choose to act based on our, our understanding of what we think is good and what we right, think helps right. to make the world a better place. And different mm -hmm. people have different precise conceptions of it. That's all fine. All concepts fall short of form. But to be able to do that... We have to achieve a balance which enables these needs to be met in a sustainable way and protects that balance from being thrown off because that balance is always in danger, I think. And no matter what level of technology we achieve, that balance will always be in danger of, of being thrown off. As long as yeah. human beings remain remotely similar to the kinds of beings that we are, you know, barring transhumanism and the modification of human DNA to make us nicer people. Yeah. And one of the great ways of uh, thinking about how to achieve this balance is through uh, the theory of history, because the theory of history emphasises the different things that may contribute to the balance. Marx emphasises technology and class. Uh, Hobbes emphasises the state. And then Plato and Aristotle emphasise technology, the state and class. They emphasise um, each of the core elements of a materialist theory of history that emphasises the material and social relations that contribute, at least for Plato and Aristotle, towards creating the time for the kind of um, contemplative space for living a good life. And you know, in that sense... Though ideas won't change history, and though saying these words um, won't magic a Bella state into being, uh, at least we can try to understand how that might come about, how a balance might be approximated. And materialist theories of history are some good ways of thinking about how that balance. They help us discipline our own understanding of the good because. Yeah. When we realize that we do have to satisfy these other drives to accomplish the good, then our conception of the good does not become unmoored from the reality that we have to negotiate with to achieve it. Uh, and mm -hmm. human good, the good for human beings, practical ethics requires some level of awareness of the conditions under which we try to realize our conceptions of the good and, and some yes. incorporation of that into those conceptions. In, in a way, sometimes people say, Oh, well, material conditions might sometimes rule, but other times it's all the ideas. I think perhaps a more realistic way of framing the choice would be 
between uh, moderate and extreme forms of materialism, between balanced and unbalanced uh, rule by matter over mind. Because matter always, in, in some sense, rules over mind. It's always our bodily needs that come first, such as the fallenness of our condition. But uh, there are conditions under which, when you balance these bodily needs with each other within a state through politics, you can aspire to something beyond that. And, and so it's a kind of choice that we have uh, between two points of a spectrum, which aren't really, oh, a utopia and a reality, but kind of different forms of reality. There is a, a kind of brute reality, a brute uh, amoral realism, which arises in those conditions, perhaps such as our society's own, where in the absence of genuine collectivity, matter simply tyrannises thought and we become totally subject to bodily needs without the ability collectively to have the resources needed for living the good life. Um, but the, the alternative is when these bodily needs are balanced, that you can focus on something beyond them. And it's perhaps an enduring paradox that when bodily needs are uh, satisfied, you can reach beyond the body. But when they are unsatisfied, this produces an obsession with the body. Uh, and in some sense, this is the society we're in, we're in where material conditions do rule as they have always ruled. But the lack of balance among these conditions, the lack of a, a social mediation or collectivity that can balance these conditions with each other, uh, means that there is no ability to have genuine philosophy, genuine moral virtue. Because in the absence of politics, in the absence of balance, there is no way of taming the material conditions to align with the good. And that's why even ascetics and loners spend most of their time preparing food, eating food, sleeping. Mm. Yeah, and that's why people who meditate and, and look for enlightenment or look for Plotinus's uh, return to the one, communion with the one, uh, even people who spend their whole lives devoted to spiritual fulfillment, they get these moments of communion or enlightenment or, or moments where they really feel like they've glimpsed an element of the good only a handful of times across years and years of doing it because most days they're a little too hungry or they've got a little bit too much sex drive or they're a little bit too tired. Something is not quite precisely right. And that's why in the mm. Phaedrus, it is these horses that have to pull the rider up above the heavens. The rider can't get there mm. on his own. There's no staircase right. for the mind to wander up independent yeah. of the and body. And so by balancing the horses that the rider can get to the heaven. It's only by balancing these passions. And that's, that's what makes us human. It's not, we're not human because we're somehow separate from the animals, uh, from other animals, in having some godlike capacity to transcend our conditions. No, what makes us human is the ability to, when our material conditions, when our horses are balanced, to look beyond. <laughs> but it's only through that balance that we can look beyond. It's only through politics that we can have philosophy, yeah. only through collectivity that we can have morality. And as our, our society becomes more and more obsessed with economics and survival, our ideas become more and more detached because we have nothing to bring these things back together, nothing to, to ensure this balance. The state 
has gone on holiday. And it's not performing its ancient function of reconciling these things. And in, in its absence, it's worth pointing out that whenever people say that they are making moral claims in this society, I think it's worth not believing these claims, because in a society which is not really a properly a society, a society without a state, without collectivity, the only thing that can rule are brute material conditions, are brute biological needs expressed through, in, in this case, the market. The whole Whenever culture becomes say, one big yeah. reification, okay? Right, the right. whole culture yeah, yeah, is yeah. about all of these moral ideas that people throw around. They're all about concealing the reality that right now almost everything that happens is dictated by what's productive, okay? Right, that's, right, That's right. the insight. It comes out of Lukács, really. But I'll say it on the Marx episode. The whole culture, yes. all of this stuff, you know, all of the fiction where you can imagine that you're Captain America or Spider-Man or Harry Potter, it's all about reification. It's all about enabling you to imagine that you're living in a society where you get to act on the basis of what you think is good through your consumer choices, when in reality, almost every decision you make is dictated by productivity. Right, right. Because the mind hasn't been given a space for contemplation. Matter just tyrannizes mind if there's no political mediation, yeah. if there's no way of balancing the material conditions with each other. Material conditions just rule straightforwardly, and there is no room whatsoever for any spiritual needs. And the but mind the just retreats over- yeah. into a sky palace. Right. And yeah. the way of overcoming that is not to say, oh, well, we should just retreat into, we should just further the retreat into the uh, mind palace because material conditions, they are bad. The way is to balance the horses. When one horse is going in one direction and leading everything astray, the way is to balance the two, balance desire with recognition, balance these different passions. That would be the way to create the balance necessary for virtue. And there is really no other way. If we don't have politics, then there is no way of having true philosophy, true virtue, true morality. And without, without that, without collectivity, all that can happen is we come up with all these ideas that we might think are aligned with the good, but more often than not are just the expressions of market forces. All right. I think that about wraps us up. Nice long Marx mm-hmm. episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for sticking with us all the way through. So, of course, if you want to support what we do, you can go to patreon.com slash politicaltheory101, all lowercase, no space, and help our sound producer who is piled, piled with student debt that he is constantly, constantly trying to overcome. He's so exploited. Mm -hmm. Help him. Uh, And if you don't have the money, don't have the time, don't have the inclination, don't worry about it. We'll be back. We'll be back Probably, I, I talked about doing Nietzsche, and maybe maybe we'll do Nietzsche next time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I promise you things, and then I do other things, but we always get around to what I promised eventually. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. All right, so we'll wrap up for today. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, and uh, hopefully we didn't take you out of the reification too much for you to enjoy yourself today. <laughs> All right. Have a great day, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>